0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. good morning, good morning. Children, you may be dismissed unto uh, Children's Church uh, for the adults and the other children staying behind. Are you ready to study your Bibles? Yes. All right, me too. This morning, we are going to be in probably one of the hardest texts in the in the scriptures, one of the least preached psalms. uh, I could probably argue for one of the least preached psalms. And uh, that's Psalm 109. And so as you get there, I would like to sort of frame up our time today as best I can. This summer, like many summers, we are studying the books of wisdom in the Bible. And this particular summer, we've examined the categorical diversity of the psalms, from songs of lament to words of wisdom and royalty to songs of God's historical omnipotence and thanksgiving. And we've journeyed through these psalms with a particular approach. Each psalm uncovers for us, teaches us, encourages us, To come before the Lord with our whole being. That is to say, to come to God just as you are. Everything you're thinking, everything you're feeling, in the middle of any situation, lay it down at his feet. The Psalms teach us to express the emotions we may be trying to hide. And something that we've learned through this series is that it's not just feelings on the right side of the column. In other words, you and I are not just hiding away our sadness, our grieving, our pain, our tears before God and our community, but we can also be hiding our joy, joy which Christ has purchased for us, joy which should be our everlasting state. I need you to stay there, family, because given the psalm we have today, you could believe that joy is not something that you could hold in tension with something on the opposite end of the spectrum. But I wanna tell you today, family, that you can be joyful and sorrowful. You can be both joyful and angry. Our song this morning is a song written from pain, a song written in anger, a song written in the heat that we all have felt when we become outraged. It sits in the category of lament, but it's not totally a lament. It's called an imprecatory psalm, which means to throw curses upon. And so keeping the theme of songs, I've titled our time in this exchange simply a song of cursing. And I have four points of application for four things That the psalm teaches us to give to God our feelings, our enemies, our trust, and our praise. That's where we'll be. So if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from the Lord this morning. Psalm 109. And it reads, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his day be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may be cut off from the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses be upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you indeed know us. We are truly and deeply known by you. And therefore, you have orchestrated this psalm for our time today. May your word guide us, direct us, and give us peace. And help me, Father, say what needs to be said. And may, our, may your son be lifted high this morning. Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ's holy name, amen. You may be seated. In 2019, Netflix released a very popular award-winning four-part docu-series covering the Central Park Five and the events that took place on the night of April 19th, 1989. Some of you may remember the news coverage of that evening in Central Park, New York City, where a sadistic and evil crime took place that left a woman who was jogging in the park in a coma for 12 days. That crime was one of many that were performed that night, but hers was significantly different than the rest. Of all the crimes committed that evening, hers were violently and aggressively unique. She was the victim to numerous evils that I will not mention here, but in the heat of racial tensions in the 80s and 90s, it was five black and Latin teenagers, ages 14 to 16, who were charged with the crimes relating to her. The five youth then became victims themselves to police coercion, illegal interrogations, and violations of basic human rights. They became media targets. Full-page ads from a former president were taken out calling for the death penalty of these children. They ended up serving different sentences based on their age. Some served six years, some served 12. Some served something in between. But in 2002, something extraordinary happened. They were released. You might say, well, that's injustice itself. For the crimes they committed, they should have served longer. But that's hardly so. All five of them had their charges vacated after someone else confessed to those demonic crimes that took place that evening on April. Those demonic crimes that those five were falsely charged for were then handed to that person. On on that April evening, those children were targeted to become something they weren't. Watching this series infuriates you. It makes you weak. For some of us, it's because the idea of injustice is easily relatable to. It's because you and I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of some semblance of injustice. It's not a hard concept. It's also easy for us to identify with innocent sufferers. It's just simply not fair. For others of us, this particular kind of injustice touches places that are close to home and incite within us deep feelings of anger. Why do I share this with you? Simply put, the popularity of this docuseries shows us how easy it is for us as a people to identify with innocent sufferers. Moments like these, media like this, press upon feelings and longings we all have. We long for justice. Humanity longs for justice. There is no person here, child or adult, that has not experienced or witnessed to some degree the evils of this world. You don't even have to be a Christian for this to resonate with you. Injustice of any kind happening to someone else or you enrages us. Injustice happening to us, that's a different kind of fears. But I think it's deeper than that. The Christian and the unbeliever both find an agreement. This world, as it is today, is not as it should be. We long for something new. For the unbeliever, this is uh, uh, appeased through never-ceasing activism. For the Christian, however, it's sort of activism of the same kind, but we do not have the same unceasingness to our work. We know that one day Christ will return to satisfy all that we long for, justice, the punishment of evil, and the flourishing of God's created being. Our longing for justice is ultimately a longing for King Jesus. Our psalm this morning speaks about sin, justice, and the suffering of an innocent person And the needing, the need, sorry, for a coming king. It's a song that's words are so shocking, so intense, that even amongst Christians, there is a debate on whether this is even a psalm worth teaching or reciting. It's been called the mother of the imprecatory psalms by some scholars because it casts out 24 curses to David's enemies. This is not unique in the Bible. This psalm does not sit here alone. There are about a 100 imprecatory verses, a 100 verses that contain curses in just the Psalter. And since they are in the text, we must learn what to do with them and discover how they interact with our lives. It would seem, though, that to have such strong language... Even such strong feelings towards your enemies is a contradiction to the Christian disposition. When Jesus himself tells us in Matthew to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. This is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of the follower of Jesus. If we only love those who love us, then we are no different than unbelievers. And yet, here this psalm lies in our sacred text, as a song of worship, as a prayer to be prayed, and as something we should consider. And two responses are typically given when dealing with an uncomfortable text like this. The first is, just forget it exists. It's true. Especially since it doesn't fit neatly within our modern, pseudo-ancient view of Christianity. Out of sight, out of mind. And yet, that's not what Jesus did. In fact, Jesus often quotes Psalm 69, another heavily imprecatory psalm, throughout his life and ministry. So we can't ignore it because Jesus did it. And then you could possibly say, well, this is an Old Testament ethic. An Old Testament way of doing things that the new speaks on and improves on. The New Testament gives us a clearer ethic, a, a, a more modern interpretation, a less aggressive Kind of way of thinking and feeling. I would argue that that's not true either. Tony Marita, in his work on Psalm 109, says the New Testament writers believe themselves to be heirs of the New Testament ethic, and strikingly, the New Testament contains some curses of its own, either explicitly or implicitly. And he gives about a list of six. So we have this uncomfortable prayer. This uncomfortable song before us this morning that doesn't fit neatly into our worldview and muddies up the water when we think about Christian ethics, it portrays to us intense feelings. We don't want to feel words. We don't want to say actions. We don't want to take, and yet we cannot ignore it and we cannot explain it away. So what do we do with it then? I think Derek Kidner and his commentary on the psalm lands it perfectly. He says there, the imprecatory Psalms, inspired Scripture, and therefore we should see them mainly for our instruction and not precise imitation. In other words, these kinds of psalms, this psalm in front of us, has much to teach us about God, our enemies, salvation and prayer. And we should learn from it. Let it teach us, but we should also hold intention a carefulness. We should be extremely careful in making one-to-one correlation with the imprecations. So we must look at this psalm with a careful lens. And take it within its context to learn the principles of its message. And that's what I'll try to do this morning. Since it's a psalm of King David, let's consider him. We know that his life has been filled with many accomplishments. He was a great shepherd, he was a great warrior, he was a great king. We know he loved God passionately. He was not subtle about his love for the Lord. We also know he was not subtle about his sin. And so, because we know David wasn't perfect, in fact, David commits some of the most heinous heinous sins, some that none of us in this room wouldn't get close to touching. We could easily say, well, David brought this upon himself. David brought this upon himself, and now he's angry that he's brought this upon himself, and now he's pleading with God to get out. But that's actually the context of Psalm 69. It's there, David says, the wrath that's upon me I brought on myself. This psalm is different. In this psalm, David is an innocent sufferer. And so his construction of this psalm is different. He begins with a lament. From there, he begins his imprecations, his cursings. Then he names his desperation and finally finishes with the song of adoration. Four sections from which we will draw out four applications. Here's our first one. Give your feelings to God. Look at verse one. Do not be silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. David begins with praise while also lamenting his situation and he calls on God to speak. David does not want people to believe that God is indifferent towards injustice. See, David is hurt. And because he's hurt, he's angry. But family, let's be clear. This is not over some petty squabble that David is calling God to act on. These aren't matters that are trivial and just part of the comings and goings of life. He's not praying this prayer because someone cut off his chariot down the road somewhere. No, this is wickedness. True wickedness. This is bloodthirst, malicious evil, systematic and systemic injustice. This is not a no-call foul during a championship game. Let us note what really hurts David. It's not pettiness. It's not small inconsequential issues. David is deeply burdened, deeply wounded, deeply angry at this predicament. David says that he is on the receiving end of this situation. He's extended kindness and love, and in return, these men have lashed out evil against him. David says it's his character that is being attacked, and it's without cause. It's in secret, and it's in public. He's done everything he can for these people. He's loved them. He's prayed for them. He's sought their good. And all they have done in return is repay him with hatred family. What do you do when someone you love turns on you? When someone you love, someone you sought their good has repaid you with hatred When lies are spoken up against you by the very ones you speak lovingly of, what do you do? Before talking to anyone, before doing anything about it, give your feelings to God. Surrender all that you feel before the Lord. Why? Because he sent his son to come and experience the same on your behalf. See, Jesus had come and love the unlovable, reach the unreachable, save the unsavable, only to still be met with lies, hatred, and betrayal. Jesus was brought before the council where they lied on him and hurled false charges against him. He was brought before the people, people whom he healed, people whom he fed, whom he preached to, whom he lived amongst, and they chose to free a guilty man before freeing him in his innocence. And he was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas, a disciple of Jesus, exchanged Jesus's life for wealth. Judas Judas repaid Christ's love, his friendship, his mentorship with betrayal. See, Jesus is the true innocent sufferer. We, like David, we, we have dirty hands. Not, not every scenario we find ourselves in come from nothing of our own contribution to stir the pot. Only Jesus is the righteous sufferer. Only Jesus has truly deserved, never deserved the trouble that fell before him. Only Jesus has clean hands. So you and I, we will find ourselves the recipients of evil we will. Some of it we will deserve. In our sin, in our ignorance, we may walk right into trouble. We may say like David did in Psalm 69, I did this to myself. But then sometimes we may find ourselves truly and wholly recipients of an unjust situation. And that situation will rile us up. Cause us to be angry, full of grief. But see, what separates us from the world is that we got a God. I wish one of y'all was with me this morning. We got a God who is truly righteous, truly blameless. And he beckons his children saying, cast your burdens on me. We got a God who looks on us and says, give me those feelings. Those right there, the ones you're trying to hide from me, give me them. I want to take them all from you. Let me handle it because I'm qualified. My track record speaks plainly. Trust in me. I got you. Family, give your feelings to God. This next section is a rough read, but there is wisdom in here for us. David continues his prayer, and he begins to throw out curses upon his enemy. But let's let's notice something here, family. In all of this curse throwing, what David is really doing is giving his enemies to God. He's not plotting, he's praying. David doesn't pray that God gives him the strength to carry out the work of these curses. No. Starting in verse 6, we see him asking God to act on his behalf. David does not take these matters into his own hands because David knows That God does not see injustice happen and turn the other way. God does not see his children persecuted, his kids destroyed, and think, ah, such is their lot in life. No, David knows, because David is a student of the word, that God is not an idle God. He does not sit in the heavens twiddling his thumb. David knows that when Egypt held their knee on the necks of the Israelites, God intervened and rescued them. David refuses to take matters into his own hands, but instead he gives his enemies who were wicked and evil to a just and righteous God. And their judgment is necessary. David is not praying for the judgment of innocent people. Nor is David asking God to deliver evil in response to evil. This is important. We must be careful with how we interpret this. But what we can glean from this section is that though it is good for us to expect evil people to face consequences for their wickedness on this earth, we must not pay evil with evil. This truth changes us. It's the truth that separates us from the world. This affects how you interact with people, how you serve your communities, how you can understand the situations of missionaries and church planters abroad. We must not return evil for evil. And that's what David avoids no matter how hurt he is over the assassination of his character. He does not pray for evil to come to these people, only that a good and holy God would judge them. And prays specific judgments, curses against his accusers to God. I want to contend to you, family, that though the language is strong, David is actually praying for scripturally connected ideas and promises that God had already laid out for Israel in the Old Testament. Remember, church, David cries here are a longing for justice to come at the hands of a promised judge. He says in verses six through eight, give his accuser some of his own medicine. Excuse me. Give him an accuser of his own. Then he says, make his accuser's future painful. Specifically, make his days to be few and for someone else to take his office. This is actually quoted by the disciples when they talk about Judas. David says, shorten his life. Have someone else take his job. Then he says in verses 9 through 15, for God to judge his accuser's entire family, which in their culture, nothing was more important than, and sacred than your family line and your generations to come. David doesn't want anyone to remember them. This series of curses and requests to God seem incredibly harsh, and they are. But the reason, we got to notice this, the reason for such extreme circumstances to come upon them is found in verse 16. It says, for he, his accuser, did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted and put them to death. I like the way one commentator puts it. He says, his enemy didn't show covenant love, He didn't do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. He deserves, the accuser, punishment. The thought of this man's sinfulness triggers more curses in verses 17 through 20. And to summarize them, David asked the Lord to give this man what he deserves. I know this type of language is hard to digest, but family, keep this in mind. All of these curses are words found in the Bible. David is only praying in light of what he's got in front of him. What I'm trying to say is, when you find yourself the victim of injustice, the recipient of character assassination, when you're caught in the midst of anger and hurt, don't feel like you don't have anywhere to go. Go to the word of God and find comfort in his dealings with the unrighteous. David's curses are products of the curses found in the Torah, Deuteronomy and Exodus specifically. David was just reminding God to be true to his promise to Israel. But don't get lost in that. There's another reminder in this verse for us. David highlights God's love for the poor and needy and protection God declares over them. This is something God takes incredibly serious. David asked, David asked God, to judge his accusers because they violate the sacred thing God calls us, his people, to protect. Psalm 109 teaches us to surrender not just our feelings to God, but to surrender our enemies as well. As painful this may be, as painful as they are to you, we must hand them over to God and allow him to deal with their wickedness. We can expect God to deal with the unrighteous the exact way he said he would. We can expect God to serve justice, but let this also show us family that David did not pursue personal vengeance of his own doing. Instead, he comes before the Lord's presence with all of his strongest feelings, casting out his curses and leaving it in the hands of the one who has any power to do anything with it at all. Why? Because God's presence is medicinal to his wounded children. When you bring your wounded, when you bring your wounds to Jesus, the one who was wounded for you, it's a balm to your aching soul. When hurt comes your way, seeking vengeance on your own only wounds you more deeply because for you seek to repay sin with sin. You seek to be their judge and cast what you believe should be righteous judgment on them. Instead of trusting in the judge, you rob God of fulfilling his promise against the wicked and now only place yourself in the midst of the guilty. When you enact judgment on your own, you make yourself the target of judgment. Give your enemies to Jesus and allow him to do with them in the way that he will. And this is easier said than done. David knows this, so he writes these next set of verses, starting in verse 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am the object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. Family, give your trust to God. When trouble comes, when injustice comes David's way, he doesn't act. He meditates on God's character. In these verses, he appeals to God, but he also does something wonderful. He rests his soul in God's justice and faithfulness by confessing his own weaknesses. As David asks for judgment on others, He asks that he himself is delivered from judgment because he knows he's not blamed, because he knows he's blameless in this scenario, but not totally blameless before God and asks for his help. David says, My heart is wounded. My life is fading. His knees are collapsing. His body has been chewed out. David acknowledges his insufficiency and trusts in God's self sufficiency. In his weakness, he looks to God for strength, and he finds that strength by thinking and meditating on God's character and nature. While his character is assassinated, he throws himself on the character of God. When your soul is worn down, family, find your rest in him. See, David praise these curses in his anger and in his hurt, but he still ultimately seeks to bring glory to God's name. And so it should be with us. When we feel weak, when defeat is before us, when we are discouraged and downtrodden, when we feel beaten and mocked, know like David that God is our rock and our refuge, that he is our redeemer and our comforter, our vindicator and righteous judge. He's our protector, our deliverer, our sword and our shield. He goes before you and he goes behind you. He's got your back when no one else does. So give your trust to him, rest in his goodness, and leave the unrighteous to the righteous son of God. I'll close with this. David finishes this song with a confession of faith and declaration of praise. Verse 30, with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who who condemn his soul to death. David ends this song with a passionate, passionate praise to God for his justice and mercy. This this, this is not a mindless routine, an exercise of praise. This is not, man, God, I sure did ask a lot from you just now. It would really be nice if you did it. By the way, you're great. That's, That's not what this is. This is a genuine, heartfelt cry of thanksgiving. David says, I will give you praise publicly so that everyone will know where I stand. I love you, Lord. Family, in times of struggle, in times of pain, in times of trauma, you may feel like those things are keeping you from magnifying your Redeemer. 12 years as a professing Christian, and 10 years in ministry, have shown me that the area of one's life that gets attacked most by our shared accuser, Satan, is our praise. And you've seen this too. In our sin, we don't press into community. And yet, that that part's self-inflicted, right? We sin, we withdraw. But even during external trouble. Things that happen to us. Death, sickness, miscarriages, personal struggle. We pull away from God. We pull away from His church. We don't allow ourselves to be comforted by the people whom God has given us to be cared for by. And because we pull away from people, we pull away from public and corporate praise. Look at the beauty of verse 31. David gives us two reasons why we should war against this. Why this should never be a reality for us. He says, for God is for the needy and he saves the condemned. See, in verse 6, it was David's accuser sitting at his right hand. But now David says, it's God. God is at David's side. God is in the position of support. In John 16, we read the same thing when the Holy Spirit descends on God's people to their side in the position to be their helper. And in 1 John, we read how Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding on our behalf. Oh, what support you have, family. What support you have. Your support comes from the one who in Psalm 37 is the one who makes the wicked perish and doesn't forsake his children. Who who in Psalm 2 is the one who sits in the heavens and laughs at the world's attempts to usurp his throne, but makes the nations his children's inheritance. He's the same God who in Psalm 30 only allows weeping to tarry for the night because he brings joy in the morning, who in Psalm 135 does all that he pleases in heaven and on earth, and whose name endures forever, who struck down many kings and giants who opposed his children, and who is the greater David, who took the curse of the wrath of God and nailed it to a tree with his body on the cross of Calvary. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He was made the object of lies and crucified. He took the punishment that was due to us and it's in him we are saved for we are needy and the condemned and he is for the needy and the condemned. What Psalm 109 does is show us that we are the needy, the needing a substance two on our behalf, a curse breaker, a promise keeper, and a righteous redeemer. And since because we know Jesus and, he has re- and we have received his salvation, we know that he prays for us, interceding on our behalf, giving us the strength we need to love our enemies, the strength we need to leave vengeance to God, and the strength we need to simultaneously continue the work of justice, love, and mercy, and await for his return. Turn as he becomes the perfect executor of his justice. Stand with me in worship.